Hello, I'm Michaela Maguire, Artistic Director of the Sydney Writers' Festival. You're listening to a live recording from Walsh Bay at the 2017 Festival. Good morning, everyone. Um, welcome to this morning's conversation with, bless you, with um, <laughs> the very wonderful and talented and here, Hannah Kent. Um, my name's Ashley Hay. It is my very, very great pleasure and privilege to be talking with Hannah about her work and particularly her new book, The Good People, this morning. Um, I'd like to thank you all for coming along to the festival this morning. I would particularly like to thank those of you who I know were trying to see Hannah on Thursday um, for coming back and we're very, very thrilled that Hannah was able to, to recover enough to be here today. If she needs to cough, she's allowed to, so yes, we're all good. <laughs> Um, I'd like to start by acknowledging also and paying respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Um, and I'm going to introduce Hannah in a moment. I suspect you all know who she is. But first, a little bit of housekeeping. If I could ask you all to check that your phones are either turned off or on silent. Um, if you are the kind of person that likes to stay connected and check in and tweet, there were instructions about handles and things up there. So we're going to talk for about 45 minutes now. Um, I'm going to make sure that I leave time for your questions at the end. Most importantly, if you would like to keep talking with Hannah, she's going to be down at the signing table at Glee Books immediately after this. But perhaps more importantly, you can keep her with you through the stories that she tells, copies of which she can also sign for you in Glee Books. <laughs> Um, so there's no way that we won't talk about burial rights, Hannah's extraordinary and extraordinarily successful debut novel about the last woman executed in Iceland. It was published in 2013, it won and was shortlisted for all sorts of awards from the RBA Literary Fiction Book of the Year to the Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction, the Stella, the National Book Prize, it went into 23 languages and it's being made into a film. So, what we're actually here to talk about today is her next book. Um, we're going to be today in Ireland and in the world of her stunning new book, The Good People. I was saying to Hannah when we were waiting to come on, I had about 12 books to read ahead of the festival and I, I kept this one as, as the last one. This was my little treat, my little beacon beyond all the other things. I absolutely loved this book. I loved its story, I loved its people. I loved its writing. I resented everything that interrupted my reading of it. <laughs> um, I think I hoovered it up in about two days. Hannah's evocations of her characters and their landscapes, their internal and external lives, they are utterly compelling. Um, I'm looking forward to talking about all of this. But I'm also really looking forward to talking to her about the extreme generosity and warmth that she extends to all the people in her book. I think it's a really stunning achievement. So I wanted to start, Hannah, by asking you if you can tell us a little bit about the good people, all the different kind of good people um, that we're going to keep company with in this book, the different characters that we're going to meet. Um, yeah, who, who we're going to play with today. Well, The Good People takes place in uh, around 1826, so pre-famine Ireland, down in the southwest in uh, County Kerry, in a little place just outside of Killarney, in a little rural valley. Um, 
the, it begins with a, a woman called Nora who has suffered two great misfortunes in the space of quite a short amount of time. Uh, earlier in the year, she lost her only daughter uh, to a rather sort of inexplicable illness and is now the sole carer of her daughter's only child, a boy called Mihal, who Nora uh, saw two years ago when he was two years old at the time of which he was healthy and developing normally and beginning you know, to talk and walking. Uh, but now, when he is four and, and finally in her care, is nothing like the child she once saw. He is uh, unable to talk. He is unable to walk. He, uh, he behaves strangely. He moves strangely. He is uh, referred to as, as a cretin, which was a word they used at that time. Um, and around the time that Nora receives Mihal into her care, her husband, um, Martin, also dies quite unexpectedly. So suddenly she is someone thrusted with the, the burden of looking after a very ill child who is also increasingly um, the centre of many rumours which have begun circulating around this very small valley in which she lives. The valley has recently seen a lot of quite odd misfortunes occur. The cows are drying up, they're not giving milk as they once did, the butter's not coming in the churns, hens aren't laying eggs, and people in this area are believers in the good people, which is their term for the fairies, the Irish fairies. And they start to think that maybe something supernatural is happening in this valley. And with, with Mihol's arrival, they start to see some coincidence. And in his illness, they start to suspect that maybe he is someone who is actually fairy. They start to think that maybe he is a changeling and he is the cause of all this misfortune, including the death of, of Nora's daughter and her husband. And so Nora anxious to, to protect the boy and to save him, uh, hires a, a young 14-year-old servant girl called Mary, who comes into the valley primarily to care for him, but soon she's, along with Nora, looking for ways in which they might restore the child that Nora believes is there somewhere, which leads them to meet Nance Roach, who is an old... We could probably call her a herb hag, that's a nice word for her, who lives in the community, not exactly in it, but on its boundary. She is feared by the community, but she's also respected for her skill with herbalism, but also because she is known as someone who has the knowledge, the knowledge being knowledge of the good people, knowledge of the fairies. She's someone who is almost a gatekeeper between the known and unknown world. So when these rumours of, of Mihal being a changeling, being a fairy amongst the humans start to circulate, it's to Nancy. Roach that Mary and Nora eventually go and then of course we have uh, the rest of the book which I'm not going to <laughs> <laughs> thank you for that can I'm going to ask you to read a little bit in just a moment but I wonder can you tell us where did the story come from what led you to this this place and these people and this kind of confluence of of events in the first place. It's a really funny thing, you know, ideas for books. I think when I was, I've been a reader for many more years than I've been a writer, and I always assumed that people sort of pursued something that they knew that they were going to be interested in. You know, they tried to drum up ideas. But in my experience so far, and it is limited, it's always the ideas that find you. And it's always not really quite when you're expecting it, but you know you've got one because it doesn't let you go. Mm. And that was true of burial rights, and it was also true of this book. Um, when I was researching burial rites, I hadn't even written that manuscript yet. I, um, I was in the midst of doing a lot of translation work. About 98% of the information I used for burial rites was in Icelandic. And I have a really sort of passable or mediocre fluency in that language. But translating all this material was still very laborious, very tedious. 
And one day, um, I was at the university library, and I was basically sick to my teeth with it. <laughs> I, uh, I just wanted to procrastinate. But because I am at heart a major nerd and not not necessarily conventional in everything I do. <laughs> Rather than going on Facebook, I thought, I know what I'll do, which is still under the auspices of research. <laughs> I'll go and read old English newspapers. Maybe I'll find something about Agnes Magnus started. Otherwise, I'll entertain myself that way. <laughs> so I went and did that, um, just for the joy of reading something in English and the ease of it. And as I was flipping through these old papers, I encountered this incredible article. It was very brief. It was only about 100 words long. And it was, um, it detailed the trial of a woman called Anne Roach, or Nance Roach, in, uh, in Tralee in 1826, who had been accused of a very serious crime. Um, at this stage, I was doing a lot of research into sort of women accused of all sorts of things. So it wasn't really the crime that interested me, it was her defence. This woman was described as being of advanced age. She was, descri she was described as being superannuated to the world. And, she was, uh, and she said that she couldn't be held accountable for what had happened because she was a fairy doctress and she had only ever been trying to cure someone who was believed to be fairy struck. She said she had only ever been trying to cure a changeling. Now, I had heard of this changeling mythology. For those of you who aren't too familiar with it, Changelings are, when we talk about fairies also, I should say, these aren't Tinkerbells, you know. These aren't <laughs> sweet, nice things. This is, this is the malevolent other. This is the capricious other who might suddenly favour you with good fortune or completely strike your family down. Um, they're described in Irish lore as being... Um, what is it? Too good for no, too uh, too bad for heaven, not good enough. Or what is it? Too too not good enough for heaven, not bad enough for hell. But as one Irish um, person in my audience once said, but good enough for Ireland. So, <laughs> um, but these uh, so. <clears throat> I'd encountered these sorts of stories and I knew that the changelings, sometimes the fairies wanted to come amongst humans and they would often prey on small boys or sometimes new wives or new mothers and for reasons unto themselves they would, they would kidnap these humans. But so as to not to arouse the suspicion of the family from which they stole these people, they would leave a changeling in its place. And various myths sort of describe these changelings as often resembling, being magic to resemble the stolen person, but it might have just been an old withered fairy or it might be a bewitched log or something and inevitably over time as these stories said the family would become suspicious because the changeling might you know say some strange things or they might eat and eat and eat and never put on any weight or refuse to eat refuse to talk they might dance they do altogether strange things and often bad things happen to the people in the families in which they were placed so I, had, I was familiar with all of this because it also exists in Icelandic mythology but I had never ever come across ever come across an instance where this changeling mythology intersected with the justice system or with reality indeed mm. in any way. And my immediate questions on hearing about this case after reading this article was, okay, one, is this something that this woman genuinely believed in? Did she genuinely believe that she was a fairy doctress and that this child was a changeling? Or was she using it as an excuse? And if so, how clever or malevolent or cunning mm. or was she in trying to present herself in this way? And so I, uh, I ended up writing down the article in my notebook because I had immediately these questions. 
and uh, I went on and I finished Burial Rights. And then when I was speaking with publishers about a possible second book, I asked myself, you know, I'd been pretty obsessed with Agnes Blackhurst.net, <laughs> and I knew I would have to be pretty obsessed with this next story. And I said, what, what's going, what can I immerse myself in for the next three years? What do I have these lingering questions about? And I immediately thought of old, superannuated, of advanced age, <laughs> and wrote. And that was, that was really where the book began. It was with this fascination of, the, of this woman and wanting to know whether this was a belief system that she truly subscribed so, and if so, what would her world have been like? What mm. would it have liked to pass through this life with those particular belief systems in place? Thank you. Can you read us a little bit from the book now? Yeah, certainly. I'm, um, I might read a section from quite early on in the novel. As I said earlier, um, one of the things that happens at the beginning of the book is Nora Lee loses her husband, Martin. And uh, this section is from The Wake, that is, that is thrown in her house shortly after his death. By nightfall, the cabin was filled with neighbours who had heard that Martin had died by the crossroads next to the blacksmiths, falling to the ground on the strike of hammer on anvil as though the ringing of iron had killed him. They gathered around the hearth, taking consolation from their pipes and murmuring condolences to Nora. Outside, the rain blew against the thatch. Confronted with a sudden crowd, Nora concentrated on collecting preparations for the wake with Anya. There was no time to weep while they had poteen, clay pipes, tobacco and chairs to find. Nora knew that death made people long to smoke and drink and eat, as though by tending to their lungs and stomachs they were assuring themselves of their own good health, of the certainty of their continued existence. When she felt the weight of her grief threaten to press her to the floor, Nora retreated to the cabin walls and pushed her palms against the cool lime wash to steady herself. She took deep breaths and stared at the people in the room. Most of them were from the valley, tied to one another by blood and labour and a shared understanding of the traditions stamped into the soil by those who had come before them. They were quiet, close folk, those who lived on the shadowed side of Krahan in the fertile crucible formed by the rising rock and hill of the mountains. And they were familiar with death, in her small house, Nora could see that her neighbours were making room for sorrow in the way they knew to be best. They piled turf on the fire and built the flames high, filled the air with smoke and told each other stories. There would be a time to cry, but it was not yet. Thunder rolled outside and the guests shivered and drew closer to the fire. As Nora moved around the room, setting out drinking water, she heard the people whisper stories of divination. The men commented on the weather and the movements of jacksnipes and magpies, seeing in them signs of Martin's death. Much was made of his collapse at the crossroads where they buried suicides. Some spoke of the sudden change in the sky that afternoon, of the great blackening of clouds in the west and how they had surely heralded Martin's passing, of the storm that was closing in upon them. Unaware that Nora was listening, Peter O'Connor was telling the men that just before he had seen Martin clutch his heart, he had noticed four magpies sitting together in a field. There I was, walking the lane, and did those birds move? They did not. They let me pass within arm's reach of them, and not once did they startle. That's mighty strange, I thought to myself, and I tell you, lads, a shiver went through me, for it seemed they stood in conference. Someone has died, I thought. 
Then sure, I make my way down the barine until I reach the crossroads and soon enough, there is Martin Lay, lying with the sky in his eyes and the clouds darkening beyond the mountains. There was a slap of thunder and they jumped. So it was you that found him then, lying there, asked Nora's nephew, Daniel, drawing on his pipe. Twas, and a sorrow twas to me too, I saw that great man topple like a tree. He had not yet the cold upon him, God rest his soul. Peter's voice softened to a hush. And that's not all of it. When John and I were bringing the body here, dragging him up the slope from the crossroads, and you know the heft of Martin, it was slow going, well, we stopped a while to catch our breath and we looked down the valley out towards the woods and there we saw lights. There was a murmur of intrigue. That's right, lights. Coming from where the fairies do be, down by the piper's grave, Peter continued. Now, I might not have the full of my eyes, but I swear I saw a glowing by that white thorn. You mark my words, there'll be another death in this family before long. His voice dropped to a whisper. First the daughter passes, and now the husband. I tell you, death likes three in company. And if the good people have a hand in it, well. Apologies to any Irish people sitting here. <laughs> terrible accent. I'm tempted to just stop asking questions now and ask Hannah if she'll read for about 40 minutes. Um, no, no, I won't make you do that. Um, so this place, this world, this, this 1820s Irish countryside that you've made, it is an absolutely palpable, visceral thing. Um, and I can remember reading a description of the research that you'd done for burial rites, and you talked about reading everything from dry academic articles on sheep grazing to statistical accounts of infant mortality to works on the implications of illegitimacy. And so I'm wondering, this, is this new place and time, is that also underscored by that same sort of broad and deep research? And is that part of what you love about making your books? Oh, yes, certainly. I'll answer the second part first. Yes, absolutely. I think, um, you know, there can be a lot of tedium in researching and in finding these sorts of information, but I do love that slow immersion and that sense that you're becoming you know, increasingly familiar with mm. this time and place because I know that as soon as I am saturated with that familiarity, I can leave those books and those dry academic articles behind and I can write out of it because I see it. Mm. I need to be able to see it. Um, and I think if I can't, you know, it's, um, the reader won't be able to either. Mm. So it, it's certainly something I, I enjoy doing it. I don't think you could do it if you didn't get some sort of pleasure out of it. Um, in terms of whether or not the process was the same, I would say that my research into this, into this time and into this place, but particularly into Irish folklore, um, was even more rigorous than in some ways my research into Iceland at that particular time. And I think the reason was because I set out writing this book hoping to, <laughs> thinking in my ignorance, I've done one book, I'll just copy and paste the methodology <laughs> onto the next. Um, and of course what happened was, whereas with bur burial rites I uh, ended up discovering a lot of primary sources about these people that I was researching, 
I had the opposite with this book. I found one other newspaper article in the course of my research, no other mentions of Anne Roach or the other associated characters, couldn't find them in parish censuses, couldn't find any, any even social history or local anecdotes about these events. All I had was, in the end, an art the original article that I found, which was written at the time of the trial, and also another article, which also took me... It's a very long journey to get that article, which, which was written at the time of the crime. Um, but I had nothing else. So in, I always try to... I always feel a kind of an ethical responsibility when writing about events from the... the true events from the past, because I think even though I'm not seeking to write history, I'm still representing the dead in some form or another. And I think it's important for me in trying to come to some kind of likelihood or, or accuracy in their representation to understand the world in which they lived. Because I do think that we are, all of us, products of the, you know, our society and the political culture and the culture and all the other events that are going on, our economic um, background, all these sorts of things, I think, have little, you know, shape us and also shape the trajectory of our lives. And I felt that this was particularly true when you're writing about women who, in this case, were illiterate um, at, in their own lifetime, who have been largely forgotten by society, who, when where they were represented in public rhetorical forms, were largely misrepresented. And you see this in the case of Anne Roach, who's talked of only in terms of her age and her ignorance mm. and superstition. You know, these are very sort of two-dimensional portrayals. I felt that, at the very least, if I can't find out information about their lives, if I do my background research into the sorts of lives they might have led, then I'll be able to you know, land somewhere within the parameters of likelihood. Um, and I think that's almost a kind of service that you're doing towards the dead. And it also, I think, helps you to write out of a place of empathy, which was important for me. Um, I, I do think... I know people argue about various definitions of empathy, but I think it's... Uh, it's for me, it's about identifying with the characters and being able to articulate what it is they're doing, their behaviour without judgement, and with an understanding of why it is that they feel they have these choices to make. So, like I said, because I didn't have as much sort of information about these actual people to sort of draw on in sketching out their lives, I threw myself into researching what it was like to live in a small rural community in Ireland as a woman of these particular ages and these particular means, you know. And this covers everything from... And I read so many different sources because... Most of the time, you're, you know, you can pick up any old book and find out who was in who was in Parliament and the sort of main debates going on in the newspapers. But it is so incredibly difficult to find out whether or not people wore shoes, what they mm. ate, when they did these particular jobs. You know, the small minutia of every day that no one thinks to write down, just as we don't, because it's normal and usual to us. It's ordinary. So to find out the ordinariness of lives is sometimes what I spend most of my energy doing. Um, so I, I did. I spent a lot of time reading, accessing all the sources I could, um, often old diaries and journals from people who travelled through the area and commented on the peasantry. If you look through there, you're know, incredibly biased towards the poor. Um, if you can look through their bias and prejudice, you do get these little nuggets and details. I read um, a lot of... I read a lot of Irish fiction. That was to mainly get the sort of particular flow and syntax of the sort of Anglo-Hiberno-English... Um, kind of the, the, the musicality of the way people spoke. I read um, academic... I, did, I do read academic um, articles because it's, you need to get a sense of the sorts of illnesses, the sorts of mortality rates, what people are used to, what they're accustomed to. So I did all of that, but I spent most of my time, in the end, with that focus on Irish folklore because I really wanted to understand what it was like 
to live with a belief, to, to consider yourself Catholic, to believe in God, but to also with the same absolute um, certainty to believe in the fairies and to believe in, their, in the way in which they impacted your lives, the ways in which you needed to guard yourself against them. And also a lot of Irish, a lot of herbalism, a lot of folk um, herb lore. So that's what I spent probably, um, I think I probably spent it up about two years researching this book again. A lot of that time was spent reading these sources until I felt, like I said, familiar enough that I could see these characters. I could see what they were wearing and what they were doing, and I could hear them speak. I could see their cabins, and then I and then I went and I wrote. Did you have a particular trick for kind of conjuring them up at the beginning of each day? Was there a kind <laughs> of a um, a kind of a little tick that allowed you to leave, you know, Melbourne where you were working on it and turn up at the River Flesk? Yeah, I do. I have quite a few little tricks. They're just. Um, you know, imagination is obviously always going to be there and that's what you're hoping to, but there's little shortcuts to getting to mm. that place. And for me, I um, always have a big map so I, can, I know how far everyone lives from each other and where the mountains are and where the shadows are likely to be, you know, in, in the afternoon. Um, so I need to get my bearings in a sort of geographic sense. Um, I also have a lot of photographs. I always go to these places and see them for myself and the photographs remind me of my own sort of you know, sensory experience, you know, what it's like to stand at this particular point where I know they would have. Um, and so I have photographs, but also music. Um, I know lots of writers, you know, insist on absolute silence or white noise when they write, but I listen to a lot of music and I have a particular soundtrack for every book, both books. Um, <laughs> um, that, that really, for me, gives me that sort of emotional shortcut to these characters and what they're going through. So I do lean on those. And mm. most, of my, most of my writing days begin with, with listening to the music. And if I, if I need to hear the words, I'll stop it. But it, I listen to it so many times, I've just become used to it. It's your own white noise, in it a is. sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah. with that, you know, it's like when you read poetry. You know, mm. poets contain such, such depth of meaning and you get such atmosphere out of just a few short lines. And I find that's what musicians do as well. They transport you immediately. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I do lean on that. Um, I want to come back to empathy, uh, which you mentioned um, just in a moment, but I, I'd like to sit too at, um, with not just the idea of magic. You know, we're, we're here with Nora and her grandson, um, and he is this, this utterly transformed and alien thing to her. Um, and and we, as we start moving through Nora's story, we start to see her try to make her own sense of that, and we see... Um, the counsel that she seeks about it and we see the help that she enlists and we see the sort of shape and the weight of the shadow that he casts on her life and then that even, you know, though she's trying to keep him kind of close and private, the shadow that he starts to cast on her village and her valley and her community. And it struck me that in many ways Nora's world, this world of, you know, 1820s rural Ireland, she's got three options for what she's going to do. She's got the option of medicine, she's got the option of religion, and she's got the option of folklore. And I think one of the extraordinary strengths of your book is that you offer up all three at different parts of the story and in different ways as, as utterly equal and possible alternatives for what Nora is, is going to do. So herbal cures and the sort of idea of the other world, that's as real to Nora as the medical doctors, mm. you know, might be to us. So it's very real in the book. Um, and and I, I loved that sense that all of these things had an equivalent kind of weight and agency and potential 
And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about these three, these three strands mm-hmm. that Nora has available to her and, and the way that you sort of honoured the veracity of each one mm. in her world. Well, probably looking at medicine first. I mean, this is something where, you know, we have such easy access to modern medicine. And we also have a great understanding of modern medicine. Um, we're quite, you know, we have a good vocabulary about very il- various illnesses and disabilities that these characters did not have. Doctors in these times were incredibly few on the ground, and they were largely confined to urban centres. And if you did happen to have a doctor, who you could send for, who could make the long journey back to you, it was, the cost was enormous. It was often without, you know, beyond the reach of, of the poor. You just simply could not pay for these medical mm. services. Doctors wouldn't even come out to you if they couldn't think that you could pay for it. So there's a quote at the beginning of the books divided into three sections. And there's an Irish proverb from that time which I found which says, death is the physician of the poor. And it's true, it was. And so lots of these people instead would turn to their belief systems, which they weren't just sort of, you know, empty beliefs, let's let's pray that this person gets better. They they saw, you know, this was a this was a belief system which truly believed that miracles would occur, that priests were capable of healing. There's a scene in the book where Nora goes to the local priest and asks him to basically come and heal her grandson. And the priest, you know, who who is a, a modern man from an urban centre, not really um, well-versed in the way in which these country people uphold the older system of all belief systems being intertwined, that, you know, folklore and religion is not, are not two separate things for them. They are one and the same. They are inextricably tangled together. He, he refuses. He says he'll pray for the boy and he'll do all sort of the religious rites and rituals, but he, he's not going to promise to heal him. And, and Nora doesn't understand this because from her viewpoint, the priest has a spiritual power, just as someone like Nance has a spiritual power because whereas the priest's source might be from God, Nance's source is from her acquaintance with the fairies and the understanding of why they do the things they do. And was, the other thing that I soon learned in researching this book was that there is an incredible amount of wisdom in folklore. There are a credible amount of cures that we still use to this day. You take the herb um, foxglove or the plant foxglove, it contains digitalis, which we still use in, you know, in heart conditions. Um, at this time, people used it for the same thing, you know, and it, and it cured them, it saved their lives. But also, people didn't understand necessarily what it was in the plant that was sometimes curing people who were suffering heart conditions. They thought that maybe it would cure other things and then sometimes it would kill people because it can, it can paralyse you and it can easily, you know, it can be fatal to ingest foxglove. So the foxglove began to get a reputation as the fairy's plant because it mimicked their patterns of behaviour and sometimes saving people's lives and sometimes killing them, being capricious and, and you know, un- inexplicable. And so the foxglove then became only really available for use for the people who said to be acquainted with the fairies, which would largely be people who lived on the outer of the community who were a little bit more well-versed in the ways and the means in which you should use plants and incorporate them into herbal remedies. So you started to... um, So when Nora turns to folklore, it is with an absolute... And much like when she tries belief, um, you know, she goes to the priest, it is with a certain confidence that something Mm. can be done because things were done, people were cured... Um, And I think that was probably the first step for me in researching this book was stopping... I had to stop thinking of all these rituals and all these cures as being just superstition. There's a huge amount of sort of meaningless acts in this, in, in terms of what people did and writing things on paper and pressing it to the skin and doing things a certain amount of time. But there was all these rituals guarded, actually, a lot of... um, were sort of there associated with things that were 
you know, incredibly efficacious. So for me, it was about understanding too the, 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 the understanding of sympathetic magic, which lies at the heart of Irish folklore. And sympathetic magic is the term people use to describe this particular belief that one thing will act on another, that we are all connected, that plants are connected to each other, that we are connected to the seasons. So for example, um, and a common cure for jaundice was to apply or make a tincture of yellow primrose. So yellow primrose is a yellow flower. It's believed to be helpful because the yellow comes from the sun, which gives its goodness to the flower. And the yellow in the flower means that it will have a sympathetic effect on a child who is yellow. So that yellow in the flower will act upon the yellow in the child and then the child will be cured. So while you can see that there is no, under, no, no sense, really, doesn't, it's not rational as we, are, we would consider ourselves to be rational, it nonetheless has a particular logic to it that would form a narrative that still sometimes worked. Mm. So I, I don't know if I'm explaining it. I'm not sure if I'm getting full credit to the sort of the, the ways in which people regarded folklore and the way in which they understood certain herbs and remedies and rituals to be beneficial. But it's um, it was undoubtedly something that characters in this book would have would have seen work previously. So they had no reason to believe that the various more extreme cures that they're using on Mihal wouldn't actually eventually work on him too. Yeah, they have their own sort of internal logic in a sense. Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually a completely rational system of belief. Um, and, I, and I talk about it in the present tense because people still subscribe to it. Mm. And for good reason. I mean, there's, I've developed an amazing herb garden. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I want to come to that too. Um, I had an incredibly real sense of the line that so many of these characters walk quite perilously between life and death. You know, you, you can feel their hunger, you can feel their disquiet, you can feel the way they move, like with one incredibly painful or tenuous step after another through the very real and lived experience of subsistence. Mm. That's what, you know, th that's what this is about. And there is a gorgeous moment in the book where Nance Roach is travelling somewhere on a horse-drawn cart and you write, every rock and rut knocked through her bones until she felt that her remaining teeth would shudder from their gums. She was unused to travelling so quickly, unused to the rapid pull of a horse, its ears upright to the urging of the dark-coated man sitting front, dirty collar about his ears. And in one of the pieces I read about burial rites, I think a reviewer mentioned their suspicion that you had invented a time machine <laughs> because the experiences that you gave your characters, everyone, was so rich and so sort of lived. Can you tell us a little bit about how you accrete those very particular layers of sensation and observation, how you know what it feels like to be a woman who goes everywhere by foot and to suddenly be speeding through that landscape? on a horse-drawn cart? I'm not sure if I can answer that question, absolutely. Um, I know I said before, for me, it's crucial to be able to see what I'm writing. Um, it's like when I read, I, from a very young age, I remember sort of being in, you know, in disbelief about my peers who, who struggled with reading and who could just only see the words on the page. I'm like, but no, it's like, it's like a movie. You pick it up and you, <laughs> you see it. You're not, look, you don't look at the words. Um, and that, for me, is what writing becomes. I'm not actually looking at the words on the screen. Um, I'm, I'm just seeing it. And I think that does come from doing so much research and sort of becoming and collecting these small details, these small references to the dirt on people's clothes or the way that a mud might pull down on a skirt or the way that people were barefoot and what that would be like to, to walk through snow. And most of my wondering about, you know, what would, what it would be like um, comes in that research process. I hear these things that are 
often, in, in fact, some people talk about how bleak this book is. Um, I don't mean to put you off there. Um, <laughs> it's also not true. <laughs> but, you know, people talk about, I guess, the difficulty in that mm. sort of subsistence living and just how poor some of these people are. And they are indeed very poor. I have to tell you, some of the things I've read, I really had to pull back from. And some things have been not sanitised, but these people are not as poor as they could have been. Um, you know, um, you're reading accounts of people living in homes that they have constructed from where people have been digging turf. So they're basically holes in the ground. And they're using four of the walls and then they have a lean-to. And people who are visiting these houses are commenting how in winter everyone's just sleeping in a puddle. There's no drainage whatsoever. The, the whole floor is underground and people are just sleeping. Sometimes children are sleeping on top of pigs so that they're not basically drowning in their sleep in these conditions. I mean, you, you can't fathom what it's like to live under those conditions. So for me, it was, it's about um, picking up these little details, understanding what it was like for some people to live. And then when I come to write, you know, I don't, I don't really stop and think, OK, how can I indicate that, you know social status of the driver <laughs> and let's give him a dirty collar and that might indicate he hasn't been washing or something. I just, I just, I see it. I just see it. I think so much of good, um, for me, I like to get in a first draft into a sort of a trance-like state mm. and that is really when I'm just seeing it and not really bothering too much about it. And I think a lot of those details emerge in the, in the first draft and then, you know, the, 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 structural, the structural work and the narrative work and some of the, uh, you know, deepening of characterisation comes in rewriting, which I spend a lot of time doing as well. But those little, I never, the scene never changes. It's just mm. a matter of how cleanly you can communicate what I'm seeing in my mind. I think too, it sort of undersells what you're doing a little to say you just see it because I think you feel it somehow. You're actually, yeah, of course. you know, you're inside the, inside the people in a way. Mm. And I want to sit with Nance for a minute. You describe her as the keener the handy woman, people looked at her white hair and saw twilight, which is the most beautiful sentence. Um, she was both the woman who brought babies to safe harbour in the world and the siren that cut boats free from their anchors and sent them into the dark. And then you say, she stood for all that which was not and could not be understood. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about fleshing her out. You know, mm. she's, the, she's the, the sort of spark of origin for the book. I know there is a there is a kind of act of radical an act of radical empathy in imagining and inhabiting any character in a book, and Nance must have been an amazing person mm. to kind of work out from the inside out, if you see what I mean. Oh yeah, undoubtedly, because the book started with with a fascination with mm. her, and you know I think I think she still remains my favourite character in the novel. I am. Um, and I did develop great empathy and feeling for her, even though she's just my own construct. Um, but I think that came largely from reading, spending a lot of time reading about people who were like her in those times. And that varied from... I read some incredible other real, true um, changeling stories from the 19th century, the most famous is which, of which is The Burning of Bridget Cleary. Um, Angela Book, a fantastic Irish writer and scholar, wrote a wonderful book about it. Um, Bridget Cleary was 25 years old when she was uh, basically burnt alive by her husband and by her relatives and, and community who believed that she was a fairy. Um, and there were other instances too of people going through these things. So one of the first things I did on hearing this case and, and in trying to find out more about this one was I read about these others. And there were often people mentioned in there who might have seeded the idea that these people were, mm. were changelings or fairies. And they were often described in a similar way. They were described, and this is men and women, not just women, they were often described as fairy doctresses or the people with the knowledge, um, doctors as too. They were said to be um, often very poor, 
very illiterate, and their real use to the community was in basically acting as mediator between between the known world and between the unknown, meaning between the between the community and between the fairy local fairy population. And the reason that they were believed to have this knowledge usually stemmed from the fact that these people were, for various reasons, quite isolated already, that they were already fairly eccentric, that they already didn't belong. And people saw in their not belonging, for all sorts of different reasons, um, evidence of their knowledge. So it was kind of a bit of a circular feedback loop. And they would seize upon this role because it gave them agency and whereas they would have been completely sort of um, disempowered. So it, it, it was empowering for them to fulfil this role as kind of outcast in a community that nonetheless needed them to mediate when things went wrong. So I started to understand Nance as, as sort of living in this very difficult kind of... Um, liminal state. Um, she's, she's neither, she doesn't belong to the community, but they also need her and she's not out of it. She's, on the, she's always on the edge. Um, she is incredibly feared, especially by people who have started to subscribe to the modern understanding of Catholicism being very separate from what pe other people would term sort of pagan rituals and beliefs. Um, and yet other people need her and she knows that she's needed and she knows that people, as much as they might fear her, still respect her because undoubtedly she fulfills that function. Function. So the fact that she's a keener, you know, she's there between life and death, and she's there between pre-birth and birth, mm -hmm. she comes in at all these liminal stages because she herself is a fairly liminal character, fulfill, fulfilling a liminal um, function in this community. But that, of course, is a very tenuous position to occupy. And um, I was, again, really interested in looking at what happens when a woman who is empowered solely through her beliefs um, and her proclamation that she can mediate with the fairies is is kind of um, what happens when that belief system is taken away from her you know is she's she's suddenly incredibly vulnerable so I was for the large part of this book exploring the threat of her own vulnerability in the midst of looking at her agency and her power and influence in this community she's an amazing character I think I'll carry her along with me for a mm. long time I want to come back to your herb garden for mm. a second um, and if you can talk to us about some of the protections and charms by which your characters not only make sense of the world but keep themselves safe. I'm wondering, do you find yourself carrying on with any of them? <laughs> Are you tucking a little salt in your pocket or a little bit of a burnt-out ember from the fire? I'm a, I'm a terrific one for throwing salt over my shoulder <laughs> and that did get worse during the writing of the book. Um, <laughs> Something which I've always done since I was a little girl and I never really thought anything. I often sit with my thumbs tucked between my fingers and as I was reading all these beautiful folklores, I found that that was a very common way that people used to water for evil because you're making the cross. So now whenever I find myself sitting like this, I'm like, oh, oh. you know, it's, it's there, it's in the blood. She's back. Um, but no, I think it was... I, don't, I haven't really become particularly superstitious and because I don't really regard these things as superstitions. Um, you know... Because the fairies were everywhere mm. at this time, you know, they were they were amongst you. That you you just had to acknowledge their presence, and you had to keep on the right side of them. So, every you would there would be hundreds of gestures that you might do to throughout your day to sort of secure your own good luck, much as we still do. Touch wood. <laughs> you know, we still do it. It doesn't necessarily mean we think we're going to have you know it's going to prevent it from happening, but we feel a little bit uneasy if we don't do it. So. I was a lot of my research was finding out what these gestures might be, and of course, because we still don't do things like put iron um, pokers over cradles to prevent fairies <laughs> from coming and stealing the children. They seem really bizarre to us, and you know, not lock health and safety. But um, <laughs> but these were the sorts of things that this is the same. It's the same sort of 
I don't know, sensibility behind it. It's the reason why you yelled out, beware, before you threw out the water that you washed your feet in in case the fairy was walking past and got it in the face <laughs> and then, you know, wanted to sort of sit out against your family. It's why if you were going to build a house, you would take off your hat and you would throw it in the air and the fairies would carry it to a much more suitable place. I mean, it's probably quite, you know, there's, again, reason in that because you think if the wind is carrying your hat and where it finally drops is probably going to be quite a sheltered area. But... People thought if we do that, then the fairies will make sure that we don't build our house on their path. There was a reason why you would offer them things like milk, which fairies like, especially new milk, bee stings. You would go and pour it out of the tree. There's a reason why you... if And I, I went to Ireland and I met people who still do a lot of these mm. things, including not always to do with the fairies, just things against bad luck and the evil eye. For instance, if you uh, met a hare in the road, like a, a hare, you would... Um, you would tear your clothes, especially if you're pregnant, because otherwise your child would be born with a hair lip. I mean, that's where we get the word hair lip from. Um, you would never be present if at, at slaughter time or at a funeral because the death and the blood might infect your child. If a child was born with a birthmark, you could be sure it's because someone threw like a berry at the mother's face while she was pregnant. So all these sorts of things just... I just found fascinating. And I could keep on rattling off to you all the various things that people would do to sort of just, just guard against bad luck, just to try and stay on the right side of the fairies, just to try and prevent anything from happening. And this was, I think, especially true of people who were poor and, and again, largely disempowered in their own communities and country. Because when you don't have anything, you know, when you can't control a lot of what is happening to you, you will do anything available, even if it means just crossing your fingers or throwing salt over your shoulder. If that's some small thing that you feel you can do to control your fate, then why wouldn't you do it? Mm. We're always just trying to make the narrative that makes sense of it, aren't of course. we? We're still doing it. We're Absolutely. Doing it. A cause for every effect. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I, I keep killing off very nice husbands in books, which um, makes me occasionally superstitious and anxious about the safety of my own very nice husband. <laughs> and I'm wondering if writing itself carries a sort of superstitious weight for you. Is it, is it a thing about which you can become superstitious, the process or the actual narrative that's kind of finding its way out through the page? Oh, that's a very good question. I think there are things that I get quite particular about, but I think that's less about a superstition and more just about me. Um, I, I really need a routine and I get very um, frustrated when I'm writing if I can't get to the desk before 8am because I feel I do my best work between 8 and 11. And I think that just probably has a very practical sense. If, it doesn't, if I'm not getting there until 9, it's probably because I'm answering emails or answering the phone or otherwise distracted, so I'm less likely to be focused. So that's less of a superstition than me just being, you know, whingy in particular. I think um, one thing, though, that I have found... Again, I've only got two books to really lean on, but I think one thing that I have found that perhaps I don't really want to admit to myself, but that I look for, which is a little bit woo-woo, is, um, <laughs> is I dream about my characters. And if I don't dream about them, I'm wondering what's, what's going wrong. And I had that experience a great deal with burial rites. I don't actually often talk about the actual dreams themselves because they're very private. There's something quite sacred about them. Um, and with this book, I, I hadn't dreamt about any of the characters. I was thinking it was the first thing I thought of when I woke up and the last thing I thought of when I go to bed. But I wasn't dreaming about any of them. And 
I didn't realise how much I was missing that until I came to write about Nance. I wanted to describe her house and I couldn't picture it. And the reason why I couldn't picture it is because lots of the open museums and preserved houses in Ireland are of wealthier families. That's why they've been preserved. Something as temporary and as small and mm. as sort of miserable as the place where I knew Nance would have lived, I, I couldn't find an example of. So I could not see it. And then, um, and then I dreamt it and I saw it. I, was, I walked into her house. It was the first time I realised that she didn't have an actual sort of solid door. Um, and I saw how smoky it was. I could see where the fire was. I could see all her belongings. It was in, it's a dream that was quite unlike a dream. And um, as soon as I had that, then I could write, basically. Mm. So now I, feel, now I feel like I have become superstitious about having <laughs> dreams, that I need to have them to be able to, you know, really, really start writing and really getting up. into it. But no, not particularly. I think, you know, so much of writing for me has become about developing that routine and being disciplined. So mm. the focus is always on just showing up, not showing necessarily up. on having, you know, candles burning and <laughs> box of salt and things like that. <laughs> Over the shoulder. That's it. Um, listen, I'm incredibly conscious of leaving some time for your questions for Hannah, so I'm just going to ask uh, one more thing from here and then give you all some space. But I think it's incredibly important... Um, to spend a little bit of time talking about landscape from the incredibly long list of things that I'm skating over here because your descriptions of place are really stunning and they're completely compelling. It made sense to me when you said you had a map so you could mm -hmm. see you know, where the shadows were and what was happening at different times of the day. And I've seen you quote in a couple of places the American writer Ron Rash and his idea that landscape is destiny. And because it's more than the, the look of the place that you get, you know, you get its weather and mm -hmm. you get its temperaments, you get its kind of smell and its life. I'm wondering if landscape is impo as, as important an element to you as character when you're starting to think about a story and you're starting to, you know, let yourself be taken up by a new thing. I don't know if I set out to try and give it that same importance. I think what perhaps happens is instead I... I I can't write character without landscape. Mm. I think that's particularly true in a historical novel because I underst my understanding of it is that we live in quite, um, you know, we're quite dislocated um, and separate from the seasons and from the weather in our modern world. We have artificial lighting, artificial heating. It's very easy for us to travel um, without being exposed to the elements. All these sorts of things, you know, we get our food. Lots of us don't even know what when foods are seasonal. All these sorts of things, um, and you know. Some of those things are in place for wonderful reasons, and let's not knock all of them. You know, I'm so glad that we're in, you know, this room right now and not, and not out sleeping the wind on a pig. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, um, but I think in writing characters who exist in these times, particularly poor characters who live much more closely to the elements, you need to. Just as I'm interested in showing about how the political environment is slowly having an effect on their lives, so understandably must the landscape shape mm. the people that they are and the way in which they live. You know, and this was particularly true in, in Iceland's probably the only contemporary example I can think of where the weather really still does impact what you do with your days and I think too the people that you become. Um, there's a certain sort of Icelandic sensibility that I see in my friends over there which I'm sure is a certain... Prag they're very pragmatic, they're very stoic, um, and they have a very dry sense of humour. And I see a lot of that coming from the landscape and the fact that even when I was there over Christmas, there was a blizzard, so we couldn't go anywhere for a week. You know, you just you can't control it in the way that you can here. Um, so 
with with the good people still though I knew that as soon as I started reading things in my research that these were characters the women didn't wear shoes if they had shoes they would physically carry them to market so they wouldn't get ruined you know that these are people who walked everywhere mm. in mm. fact many of the journals that I read of, of foreigners traveling through these parts talked about how they walked kind of strangely in a way that we, we probably would also think looked really odd and it's because these were people who developed a particular kind of long distance traveling style over uneven ground and these were people where because they had to walk there, the hours of their days were different. Certain chores took a lot of time. Um, the things that you were most burdened with, particularly in the case of, you know, looking after um, a child who, who can't walk, who can't talk, who can't mm. fend for himself, when you couple that with... with um, you know, an understanding of the houses, the fact that the thatch needs replacing, that it's starting to drip through, that it's very cold, that people are getting all sorts of sort of bronchial disorders. You know, you start to see that you can't you can't just have the landscape as a backdrop. It's not just a painted setting in the background. Mm. It's it's changing things for them. It has an effect. Mm. And I um and I'm really interested in exploring that. And I think also on top. I, I, I love the Icelandic landscape. Well, like, I, I love it. I am in love with it. And that too with the Irish. And I think there's just a real pleasure in trying to try, in trying to capture some of the quite... Um, you can't articulate the beauty, but you can try. And I think I enjoy the challenge of that. Thank you so much for all of that. Um, I'd like to give you all the opportunity of talking to Hannah. We've got about five minutes left. Can I frame that with the usual Writers' Festival courtesy of saying could you please uh, keep your questions short and questiony if at all possible um there's a lady in a starry shirt down here who i've spotted immediately in the second row there's a microphone coming to you given um you're an australian author writing quite intimately about iceland and ireland I'm just wondering how the local communities there have accepted your books, given mm. that you're not a local. Um. Yeah, it's a good question, and it's something that I worry about a lot. Um, yeah, it is a responsibility, and I, I was particularly aware of that with burial rights because you know this is. Um, I wrote the book as part of a PhD, which I didn't even refer to the book as a work of fiction. I called it a speculative biography. So, in, in the sense that I. I very much taking these real lives and trying to stay faithful to the facts that are known about them. Um, and I was aware that there are, you know, there's only something like 320,000 Icelanders there today. When I was there, there was 280,000. These are people who are also very aware of their lineage and can mm. trace back their ancestors to saga times. So I knew that there would be many descendants of the people that I was writing about, including, you know, the, the Natan Kettleson, the murdered man, and also the judge, who don't come off altogether very well. Um, and so I was, of course, really anxious about that, as I was more generally about ensuring I'd got it right, you know, what it was like to live back then. In Iceland, um, the book came out in English, and then a, a few years later it came out in Icelandic, and I was there for the launch. And I think that was probably one of the most moving experiences of my life, and the most gratifying, because I had people say to me, yes, this is what it was. And so in some cases, this is what my house was like, people who still who grew up in turf houses. I also had quite a few relatives... Um, including some relatives of Toti, the priest. And most recently, earlier this year, I was in Edinburgh, and these uh, mother and daughter came up to me, and they looked identical. They had such strong genetic features. And they were the great-granddaughter and the great-granddaughter of Toti. And they, um, they thanked me for the book. And then they told me that they had a portrait of the priest, which I very recently received. It's the first time I've ever seen what one of my characters would look like. So... Um, 
What started out being a, um, you know, a source of anxiety for me, with burial rites certainly, has become much more um, you know, a wonderful gift. It's, it's a real, it's a real um, privilege to be able to hear other people's sides of these stories, even descendants of Natan, and there's a lot of them, yeah, a lot of kids. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I've, it's, been, it's been really rewarding. Uh, and, Pete, and the Icelanders also have really responded to the book in the spirit in which it was written, and they understand that it's fiction, that it's not history. With um, the good people, I was in Ireland again earlier this year, and um, I've been really touched with the warmth and the enthusiasm that Irish readers have accepted this book. No one has come up to me saying, I know more about this story yet. <laughs> I hope that that happens one time. And if it happens, I don't care if I've got it completely wrong. I'm just so fascinated in what might have really happened. Um, and I've had a lot of people come to me and say, I've got a story for you. <laughs> Let me tell you what my grandmother told me. So it's been equally rewarding. I feel like I should start a new collection of fairy tales from mm. what I've been hearing. Um, so, so far I've had very, very positive experiences. Um, some people in Ireland have challenged me on certain things, um, but it's not been, you're wrong, I'm right. It's much been like, let's, let's discuss this. Let's, let's look at the various implications. And that's been really good too. I've, I've enjoyed it immensely. Um, there's one more question here, which I think might be our last question. There's a lady just in the second row down here. There's a, hang on, there's a microphone circling around. And then um, I'm afraid I'm going to have to cut you all off. Hannah, I just wondered if you believe in fairies. <laughs> I thought we'd get through this without someone asking me that. <laughs> Look, I'm going to give you the very vague, non-committal answer that all my Icelandic friends um, give when they're asked if they believe in elves, which Icelanders apparently asked all the time, um, which is that I don't not believe. <laughs> Um, I'm afraid we have come to the end of our time with Hannah Kent this morning. I'm, I'm so pleased that your Irish bronchial condition passed <laughs> enough for you to get on a plane. Really live the experience. <laughs> uh, I hope you will all keep your conversations going with her both downstairs in Glee Books in a minute um, where she can sign things for you but also through the pages of both Burial Rights and The Good People. Um, you, can, you can find Hannah down there in just a moment. I would also like to end by thanking all of you for coming along to the festival today and for supporting the work of writers. We all need readers at the end of what we do to, to complete it and we are incredibly grateful to all of you for being part of that process. Um, I'd like you most importantly though to join me now in thanking Hannah Kent for her very generous conversation this morning and for her books. Thank you.